We still have a culture, the majority of which professes Christianity and and affiliation with Christ. But over time, he's been so altered in the impressions that people have about him that we've gotten pretty far afield from the Bible depiction of him. And of all people on this planet, you and I ought to be the people that are, you know, up to snuff on who Jesus actually was. If we don't do that, then we will allow culture and society to reshape him in our minds. And see, that then affects behavior. Uh, Surely you've encountered many people who are very lax, uh, not only in their morals but in in many other areas. And if you press them about that, they'll justify it by saying, well, I think Jesus loves me and is okay with that. You see, how you view Jesus actually affects your behavior and will then affect where you spend eternity. So this is a pretty serious subject. Let's go to Matthew, you know, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, uh, 5, 6, and 7. Let's move through that. And, of course, the world has no teaching or uh, that can even begin to compare, as you know, with anything that Jesus ever said. Let's go to chapter 12. Here's one of these incidents that really brings out for us Uh, his personality and who he was, what he was like on a daily basis in interacting with people. You remember the incident. Jesus is uh, with his disciples. It is Sabbath, Saturday. They're under Jewish law now. So they're under obligation to conform to certain stipulations that God gave under the law of Moses regarding observance of the Sabbath. They happen to be out passing through a grain field. We're not told why. And uh, the disciples are hungry. They reach up and pluck some grain and uh, begin consuming it. What in the world the Pharisees are doing out there? Again, the Bible doesn't say. But they, I guess, jump out from behind a stalk or something. And, aha, you know, your disciples are doing that which is not lawful uh, for them to do. Why? Because it's Sabbath. You know, when somebody comes at you and makes an accusation, um, before you try to answer it, First, you ought to determine, is this an accurate accusation? Was Jesus' disciples violating Sabbath law by physically reaching up and plucking grain from a grain stalk and consuming it? Obviously, their question or their statement indicates they believe that was a violation. But that didn't make it so. If you will turn in your Bible to uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 16, and also Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, you will learn that the law, the Sabbath law, was never intended to give the impression that people can do nothing. You know, you just want to go in your house and sit down in your lazy chair and do nothing for 24 hours. Otherwise, you're violating the law. That's simply not true. Those passages indicate that uh, exceptions, I I don't know that we should use that term exception because it's built into the law itself. But notice the the Exodus passage passage says, save that which is necessary to eat. You weren't forbidden from eating. And some preparation for that food would have to be made, would it not? And then the Bible even comes out under the law of Moses and says that it's not uh, unlawful to pluck grain from your neighbor's field. You could not... uh, pull your combine in there and start harvesting his crop, but passing through, you were actually authorized to do that. So they were not violating Sabbath law. 
Now look how Jesus addresses this. Again, given the kind of mealy-mouthed Jesus that's been painted in our culture, you might expect him to say, oh, you know, you guys are always accusing other people of not agreeing with you, and you're just fault finders, and you're always uh, arguing doctrine when you shouldn't be arguing doctrine. We just need to hug each other and, and get along with each other, put bumper stickers on our chariots that say, you know, honk if you love Jesus, stuff like that. You know, let's not get into uh, doctrinal distinctions. Boy, that's not the way Jesus deals with this situation. Look at the first thing that he says. Have you not read? Now stop right there and think about the import of that. And here are the, here are the Pharisees, right? Did they not claim to be ardent uh, authorities on the law of Moses and the Bible? And so you're saying, have you guys not read this passage? Do you not see that that in and of itself would have been insulting? I can just see that, well, of course we're familiar with that passage. How dare you ask us if we've read the Bible? But he's implying, if if you ever read this, you've forgotten it, or you didn't understand it, and you don't understand how to apply it. And here is that passage. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and Uh, those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. He's referring to 1 Samuel 21. You remember 1 Samuel deals with Saul's reign. So David is on the run from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him, thinking that he is a rival to the throne. Even Saul's own son, uh, Jonathan, didn't feel that. You remember Saul was threatened, so David literally had to go into hiding. And on one of those occasions, his disciples there at the tabernacle uh, asked for the showbread, and it was granted to them. Remember under the law of Moses, there were seven loaves, was there not? They were to be baked uh, every seven days. And the old ones then were to be consumed by the priests. It was part of their food. You know, the priests were not given tribal lands like the other tribes were. The Levites were not. They were given some uh, land that extended several hundred feet out from uh, certain towns to to do small scale, I suppose you could say, grazing or farming. But their salary, the way they made their living, was uh, from their priestly activity, which included receiving offerings and tithes. So you eat those, you know, those seven loaves, you're taking food out of the mouth of the priests. That's their way of getting food. And that's just a flat violation of the law because they were the ones that were authorized to consume that food. Now, what is Jesus arguing here? Is he saying, well, look, you know, the priests broke the law or or, uh, David broke the law and it was okay, so my disciples can break the law. That's what most commentators that I've read say is intended here. And the liberal element in the church says that's what's intended because they want to draw the conclusion You know, as you go through life, law, you know, do your best to kind of keep God's law, but don't become legalistic. Now, there's a term that's not even found in the Bible. But what they mean by that is, don't be just real meticulous about law keeping. I'm telling you, the Bible doesn't teach that godless doctrine anywhere. God has never given a law to anybody that he did not expect them to keep and that was not good for them. 
Remember how uh, Moses had that put to him there in uh, Deuteronomy 6, and then I think over in chapter 10. God's laws are for our good always. And Paul in Romans said, chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy, it is just, and it is good. You know, you and I as parents may sometimes make some rule or law that's not particularly good for our kids. But God has never done that, and there is never justification to break God's laws. His laws are always right for everybody, and they're good. So the concept of legalism in the New Testament is the idea of thinking that you can be righteous on your own, that you can save yourself. But the Bible teaches if you break one of God's laws, there's nothing you can do to rectify that in the sense of atoning for your sin. Jesus had to do that. So you've got to access his blood and grace. Uh, that's legalism, to think you go through life and you know, be good enough. But the, what's happened in, in the liberal churches is they twisted that and distorted it to, to minimize law. They literally pit law and grace against each other. You can't do that. Law itself is an expression of God's grace. It's good. That shows you that they have an immature, childish attitude about uh, rule-keeping. They don't like to be restricted. Well, that's, that's immaturity. Why would you ever buck or kick against God restricting you about anything? Don't you think he knows whether you need to be restricted? So... Here is what Jesus is arguing. He's not saying, okay, David broke the law, and therefore my, my disciples are justified in breaking the law. Here's, here's actually what's going on here. And again, very sophisticated. Logicians, you know, logicians have made up over the centuries, going back to the Greeks at least, highfalutin terms and expressions in Latin to identify a specific logical maneuver. This one's called argumentum ad hominem, which means argument to the man. And here's how one of those arguments works. It's not really designed to prove your case. It's designed to expose the hypocrisy and uh, the lack of validity of your opponent's argument. Now, specifically, what then is he saying? He is saying that you Pharisees, you hold David in high regard. You, you think he did no wrong. He is, you know, the ultimate. I mean, they were still talking about David in the sense that, you know, David's going to come back type thing. And in fact, on the day of Pentecost, you remember that Peter, in quoting Psalm 16, said, now the psalmist here, David, is not talking about himself because his tomb is still with us. Okay, now wait a minute. David lived about 900, 950, 1,000 B.C., and they're still taking care of David's tomb a thousand years later. They had high regard for David, thought he could do no wrong. So Jesus' argument is, here David clearly violated the law. And you have not a word of condemnation. And here my disciples are out here on Sabbath, and they consume some bread from a, or some uh, grain from a stock here which is not a violation of the law, and you're all over them. Notice then, that's putting them in their place. It's backing them off. You fellows are not eligible to make this accusation. 
because you have no problem with David, and he did violate the law. Now notice that's not designed then to answer the argument which they've made. Their argument is, your disciples have broken the law. Now Jesus turns to dealing with that. He says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? That's a figure of speech called metonymy, where they put the appearance of a thing for the thing itself. And notice he says, they are blameless, the New King James says. So what are the, what are the priests doing on Saturday? You go back and look at Leviticus and Numbers, these Old Testament Law of Moses passages, where the priests sitting down and twiddling their thumbs and saying, we can't do anything, it's Sabbath. No, on, on the Sabbath day, they had assigned responsibilities that God had given them like baking that bread. Does that work? Then if you were to come into a, a hot kitchen and found out your wife's been baking all day and you said something to the effect, uh, man, I've had a hard day at work. What have you been doing today? You, I guess you're not working, are you? See how well that goes. Not only will you not get any bread, there may be a few other things happening. You know the home of throwed rolls and La you know, Lambert's Cafe? That, that might happen. No, baking is work. That's not all that the priests did on the Sabbath. They had to butcher animals. You think that's work? So the law of Moses in enjoining the Sabbath did not outlaw all work. Now that's the conclusion you have to draw from that. And Jesus is calling attention to that. These priests on the Sabbath are engaging in work and it is lawful. They are blameless. They're not guilty. Would be another way to translate Translate that. And then look at the little uh, kicker that he puts on here in verse 6. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Notice in your translation more than likely the word one is in italics. That means it's been added by the translators in their effort to try to round out the meaning and help the English reader. But from everything I can examine, it's, that's not correct. It's not a person per se. It's, a, it's neuter. It's, in, it's a thing. There's something going on here that's greater than even the priestly activity that took place under the law of Moses. And I suspect that he's referring to his own work and what the disciples are doing in service to him. But notice what he then does. Now, now notice the argument's over. He, the debate's over. By the way, our brethren used to debate all over the place. Years ago, long before most of our time. Some of you may be old enough to have attended a few. We have a smattering of debates now, but not anything like they had in the 1800s. Hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands of, of debates that our brethren conducted. Church grew like wildfire. Nowadays, the attitude is more like, you know, oh, debates are bad, they're they're unchristian, they're uh, argumentative, and it is true that a debate can be conducted poorly, no doubt about that. But the concept of setting two people up in front of the audience and each of them giving their best arguments and then being allowed to challenge each other to answer their flaws, that is a perfectly scriptural and appropriate activity. And the prophets throughout the Old Testament and Jesus himself and the apostles engaged in this kind of activity constantly. And that's what's going on here. This is just like the one he had with Satan. It's a debate. So he's won the debate in the sense that he's proved that they're hypocrites. They don't 
deserve to be able to even make an argument. He's answered the point, can you engage in certain activity on the Sabbath? Yes, you can. Okay, you're wrong then. But Jesus was not concerned about merely winning a debate, was he? Is that all? We just want to prove to people we're right? No. We want to try to get them to accept God and his will. So Jesus now goes for the throat, so to speak. He goes for the heart and says, If you had known what this means, and then he quotes Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Fellas, if you, if you had grasped, if you had assimilated the teaching of that prophet, Hosea, you would not have, look, he again affirms the fact that they're not guilty, you would not have condemned the guiltless. You've trumped up this false charge against my disciples. They've not violated the Sabbath. And I'm telling you, you know, Jesus is essentially saying, I can look right into your heart. And you are not grasping the teaching of the Old Testament prophets. Hosea wasn't the only one that made this point. You remember the Jews of Amos' day and a lot of these prophets. They were very religious in the sense that they did the surface things to appear to be religious. But in the meantime, they were out, you know, mistreating uh, the poor and committing injustice and doing all kinds of things like that. And so Jesus is saying, that's who you guys are. You make a big pretense, march around in your robes and make everybody think you're real religious. But the way you're acting here and making these false charges shows that there's something else going on in your heart and your life. You're enjoying the prestige of being, appearing to be religious authorities. But you're not letting God's word sink into your heart because you're going around and nitpicking and misapplying scripture and attacking people unjustly. Isn't that powerful? He was concerned about their soul. So much so that he was willing to lay it bare right there for them to see. And then look how Jesus puts closure on his uh, response to them. He says, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, what I'm teaching you here about the proper application of the Sabbath law is absolutely accurate. After all, I wrote it. I'm the author of it. I'm the Lord of it. Isn't that powerful? In very short, look how short this is. What is that, six verses, eight verses? You know, we preachers, those of us who earn our living by the sweat of our tongue, tend to be rather wordy. I'll admit that. A lot of preachers probably preach too long. Then say what they say in less time. But one of the uh, magnificent manifestations of deity is the brevity of God. You know, if humans were writing a book that was intended to deal with all the cataclysmic subjects that the Bible deals with, it would be a you know, 25, 30, 50 volume set of Encyclopedia Britannica. Not God's Word. It's manageable, very repetitive. You know, a lot of the Bible is repetitive. And when it gets down to really dealing with very specific points that are gonna be that people are gonna be held accountable for. It's not difficult. It's succinct. And like we mentioned in the last hour, the teaching of the New Testament on baptism is not that hard to grasp. It's all over the place. How could the bulk of Christendom for the last 500 years be so far off track on that? Well, 
You and I can speculate, but it doesn't matter. It's not like it's somehow not clear. It is. So here is Jesus in very few words, refuting their argument, showing, uh, laying bare their hearts, and then concluding the, uh, the discussion to the point that you know, they have nothing more to say. And so he departs. Let's go a little further here and look how this uh, continues. He, here he is. He goes into the synagogue. Here's a man here who has a deformed hand. And they, they jump him. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now think, think about what they're saying. These, these guys have seen Jesus miraculously heal somebody. Why did Jesus do that? Well, the Pentecostal world would say, well, because... They need to be healed. Jesus wants everybody to be healed. Not true. Not true. Uh, Jesus never healed the vast majority of the human race, nor did his disciples. That's not the purpose of miracles. If anybody could have eliminated sickness and illness on the planet, it would have been the divine Son of God. That was not his purpose for coming to the world. And the Bible states very definitively the purpose of miracles. In passages like Mark 16.20 and Hebrews 2, 1-4, it was to confirm the word, to authenticate that the word being expressed on that occasion is of divine origin. You know, John's entire book makes that point, coming down to the very end where he states, why, why have I given you these signs? He, he numbers the first two of them, sign one, sign two, and then he comes down, ends up doing the perfect seven, and then says, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In other words, the miracles that Jesus performed authenticated his verbal claims and therefore his identity, his divine identity. So um, whenever these fellows uh, say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, you'd want to back up and ask the question, wait a minute, you've seen Jesus heal people? Why would you not then draw the right conclusion from that evidence? He's the Son of God. We better listen to him. Listen to his word. No, what, what is their attitude here? Well, you don't have to wonder. The Bible tells us that they might accuse him. They might accuse him. You know, you and I go through life every day, and we've got motives going on inside of us that we may not even want to face up to and admit. But we've got to do that. We've got to look in there and see, now, why am I taking this view? Why do I look at this person the way I look at them? You know, am I trying to get this person fired from the job? Why? What's going on there in my heart that I would want to do that? So they have problems by the mere fact that they ask the question. But Jesus answers it. And look at his masterful reasoning. Once again... He doesn't say, oh, come on, guys, I don't want to argue with you. Let's just accept each other. You don't have to agree with me doctrinally. We can never agree on doctrine, so we're going to have to unite on grace and just accept the fact that God will accept all of us regardless of our doctrinal differences. That is such a warped way to think of things. I mean that kindly. It has literally taken Christendom by storm, and as I said, it's infiltrated the church. I, I was listening to a sermon on the website of a very prominent church in Montgomery. Claims to be a church of Christ. And uh, the preacher had already preached on instrumental music some months ago, but he came back at it again. 
as justification for their introduction of him into one of their services. And he made that very point. You know, that look, we're not going to agree on everything in the church. We can't. You know, some of you think you ought to take the uh, communion in one cup and others say multiple. Well, it's the same thing with intimacy which is quite a leap right there. That's the kind of distorted logic that is allowed to function in, uh, among a group of people, and apparently a lot of people swallow it. Well, the Bible, if the Bible is clear about anything, it's clear about how to worship God, is it not? Has there ever been a time in all of Bible history where God was not clear, succinct, and specific about how to worship Him? That's all this comes down to. Well, but the Bible doesn't say we can't. You know, they go off on all these tangents that they don't use that kind of logic in any other phase of their life. And use it then to distort and to twist and to corrupt God's religion. He cannot be happy. Well, look at this amazing logic that Jesus uses. Verse 11. What uh, man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, even if it's on Sabbath, you will not lay hold of it and lift it out? What did the law of Moses say about that? It's very specific. Deuteronomy 22 and other passages. If you were uh, you know, sitting out on your front porch on Saturday, and you see your neighbor's oxen, let's say, He's broken out of his stall, and he's running down the road in front of your house. What are you going to do? You're going to say, well, you know what, Sabbath, I can't exert any effort and work. So he's just going to have to go. The Bible said, no, that's not the meaning of Sabbath. The whole concept, uh, that's what Jesus meant when he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He didn't mean by that, therefore break the Sabbath all you want. No, he meant... The Sabbath would not interfere with carrying on the normal, uh, friendly, um, brotherly activities that God would expect you to engage in. So, if your neighbor's oxen, you know, what if what if this animal falls into a pit like the sheep? In an agricultural-oriented society, you can't leave an animal like that for 24 hours. Uh, it'll die or become sickly. It needs to be retrieved. So. Under the law of Moses, you go catch that oxen and either tie it up at your house until Sabbath's over or take it on back to your neighbor. Now, Jesus calls their attention to that. They knew that passage. In fact, which among you, if you have a sheep and he falls into a pit, won't get him out even if it's Sabbath? You'll all do that. Now, listen to Jesus' clincher here. Then why in the world would you think it would be wrong to take care of a human being? What is wrong with you is the gist of what he's saying here. If God allows you to save the life of a sheep, he would sure allow you to take care of a human being. He's slapping them hard. And using penetrating, decisive logic. You know, that settles that issue there. If those fellows wanted to know God's word accurately and apply it correctly, they could do it. Jesus showed him how to do it. But all that caused him to be, no doubt, is even more 
sold up. In fact, he went ahead and healed the fellow, and the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Notice what's motivating the, the Pharisees. Is it a love for God? No. Is it a love for God's truth? No. Is it a desire to know the Bible accurately and understand it correctly and apply it appropriately? No. So there's something else going in, on in their lives. Jealousy. A desire for prominence. Popularity. You know, all the motives that are typical throughout human history that God puts his finger on. says, here's what's going on. I've asked myself over and over what that preacher at that congregation. And there, we have many. We have many across the brotherhood. Rick Ashley at the numerically largest church of Christ in the United States, Richland Hills, Fort Worth, Texas. He preached that same sermon. I mean, almost word for word, this preacher claimed to have gotten it from him uh, back in 2006. And uh, he said, uh, he said back, you know, I think it was like 12 years earlier, he said, I was standing right, he turned around, he was in the pulpit, he turned around and said, pointed at one place, he said, I was standing right there. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said that I'm one of those preachers who believes instruments are okay, but is too cowardly to come out and say it uh, because I, I'm afraid that I'll cause division. And he said that the Holy Spirit rebuked him for that. Of course, it took him 12 years before he finally came on out and said it to the church. Well, what's motivating them? Well, you know, I can't look into his heart. But I look into the Bible and I know the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to people like that. Okay? So what, how many possibilities do we have here? Bald-faced lie, something he ate, a momentary delusion. You know, there's only so many possibilities. And then to tell people and to use the arguments that he used to justify introducing instruments to corrupt the worship of God. Does he really believe all of those arguments? When they're so easily answered, our brethren have answered them for over a century. Well, I don't know. I'm not interested in passing judgment on him or trying to pinpoint his exact motives. But when I come back to the Bible, I know there are people who have bad motives. Look at Acts chapter 20. Do you remember when the Ephesian elders met with Paul over at the seacoast city of Miletus? And Paul spoke to them and said, you know, you fellows need to make sure that you're being shepherds of the flock over which God has made you overseers. And then you remember that little warning he issued? He said, I know that after my departure there's going to be some fellows arise. Wolves. Spiritual wolves. Can you and I recognize a spiritual wolf? We've, we've decided, oh, no, I wouldn't presume to do that. That wouldn't be compassionate. Well, Jesus says they're wolves and you better be aware of them. Jesus, Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 7 and Paul said it here. And then he said, but even from among your own selves. And I understand he'd be talking about the eldership, but I've certainly seen this over and over and over in congregations. Men will arise speaking perverse things, so they're going to be saying things that aren't what the Bible teaches, like the introduction of instruments. But look at the next few words. To draw away disciples after them. Now there you go. There's one very clear motive that operates in some people's minds that God just comes out and tells us what it is. There are people, that, preachers and elders and others in churches that believe and teach what they believe and teach because of the following and the uh, accolades, the uh, approval that they receive from them. We don't have to wonder about that. 
God tells us there, there's a motivation that's very real uh, that will go on in the church. All right. So they plotted then after that to destroy him. Let's go uh, a little further here in the time that we have. Let's go on down to, uh, how about Matthew chapter 21? Here is, uh, and, and as you know, the Bible's loaded with this. You know, like when they brought that, uh, when they came to him and said, you know, we're supposed to be paying taxes, uh, what do you say? And he had the disciples produce that coin. And then there's those moments in the life of Christ where uh, he, he exudes um, compassion and tenderness and love like that woman who had been had a hemorrhage for years and years. And uh, she was in that big crowd of people that was thronging Christ and the disciples, and she managed to push her way through the crowd and touch the hem of his garden. It was instantaneously healed. And you remember he turned around and, and said, Who touched me? <laughs> the disciples said, What do you mean? <laughs> There's people jammed in here all over the place. But she knew exactly who he was talking to. And she got down before him and he said, you, you know, you've been healed. And Look at the wording of it. The gist of it is, everything's okay. She was afraid. Everything's all right. You've been healed. God's taken care of you. Go on your way. He was a tender, gentle, sweet man. But you've got to put all of these personality traits together to see a, a multifaceted Lord. And I think that's been skewed in our day to the point that people have turned him into just a kind of an accepting, you could be anything and do anything. God's going to accept you. Grace, no matter what. Again, a redefinition of grace and love. Look at Matthew chapter 21 where uh, these uh, Jewish leaders come up to him. <clears throat> this is in verse 23 of Matthew 21. Chief priests and elders of the people, they come up and say, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Well, those are good questions. Those are not bad questions. The Bible teaches you must only say and do what God authorizes you to say and do. Most of Christendom doesn't get that. The Church of Christ have always emphasized that. You're to only do, Colossians 3.17, uh, those things that can be done in the name of the Lord. That is with His authority, with His approval. So you've got to find out what God approves of and what He doesn't. So he doesn't rebuke them for these questions. They're, these are good questions. But he knows that they're not interested in what authority, where his authority comes from. But look how he deals with them. He says, I'll ask you a question, which if you answer, then I'll answer your question. By what authority I do these things. All right? The baptism of John the baptizer. Where did that come from? Is that from heaven or men? In other words, did John wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to start a new religion, start a church. And I'm going to just go out here in the desert, and I think the way I'll have people uh, become a, an adherent to my religion is I think, uh, I think I'm going to dunk them in water and just kind of start a, a new group. You know, that's how most churches start. Just mere humans deciding, hey, let's start a church. We'll call it the Fifth Ascension Charismatic, Pentecostal, whatever. You know, you've seen all the names and signs on church buildings all over the country. People thinking that they're doing God's service and pleasing God by just starting a religion. You know the founders of our country said, humans are not even authorized to start a new nation, a new country, unless God authorizes them to do so. 
And throughout their writings, they argued he did. He did. So Jesus is saying to them, was John just out here a good religious guy and just kind of saying things and doing things that he thought of? Or did what John teach and say and do come from God? Which is it? Well, what logicians call this is a constructive dilemma. Again, a very sophisticated logical argumentation where you so put your opponent in a position where either horn he takes, he's going to hang himself. And they sized it up real quick and said, well, we're not going to answer that. Why? Because, you know, if we say John came from God and everything he said was from God, then he's got to jump on us for rejecting what John said and not doing it ourselves. But if, on the other hand, we say, John, ah, John's just a man making up stuff, then the people are going to be upset with us. That's going to hurt our credibility and standing because they think he was a prophet. So we're not going to answer. Jesus said, well, I'm not going to answer you. And I don't think he meant by that, okay, you won't answer me, I won't answer you. He meant, do you not see that the answer to that question is the same answer to the question you asked me? You want to know where I get authority? I got authority from the same place John did. You don't accept John's authority? You don't accept my authority. He knew all that. He knew what was in their hearts. But in such a sophisticated manner, he pricked them with the fact that they were not willing to ask that question sincerely because they were not willing to submit to God and his designated emissary. That's incredible. Incredible, brief, succinct, penetrating logic. There's so much more we can look at. If you look in the next chapter, chapter 22, he, he has a row with the, the Sadducees. They come to him, you know, and they've seen that the Pharisees have been shut down several times. So now notice, these are the Jewish denominations of the day. They each claim to have justification for being a legitimate Jewish sect and, and having their own special name, their own central doctrines. Look at the denominational world in Christendom. Even their names indicate elevating a doctrinal concept from Scripture above others. You know, like presbyteros is the word for elder, so it has to do with church organization. Go back and look at history. Why, why use that term? Episcopos, another term used in the New Testament to refer to, to elders. Um, the word for immersion or baptism. That's a very specific historical reference to a biblical doctrine. And that's the case with many of the groups. Well, that's the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the, the uh, Essenes and the Zealots. Was there authority from God for all those religious groups, those factions, those divisions of Judaism to exist? I'm telling you, there was not. While Moses didn't make provision for Pharisees and Sadducees, those were unauthorized Jewish sects. But they were religious and they believed in the right God. It wasn't acceptable to God. So when he encountered these Sadducees, their core doctrine was that they didn't believe in afterlife. They thought when you die, that's it. Whatever keep, makes you alive, your personality, your animating force, it ceases when you die. Same view as Jehovah's Witness. And therefore, they didn't believe in anything pertaining to afterlife. So no angels, right? Those are spirit beings in the afterlife. No uh, resurrection. The concept 
of your spirit existing apart from your body in an e eternal realm coming back into your body, that's resurrection. They didn't believe in any of that. The Pharisees did believe in it. So you remember they come to Jesus, challenge him with this leveret marriage situation where this uh, woman was married scripturally to seven different brothers, all legitimate. And so then they drop the punchline and say, so, you know, in the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, Who's she going to be married to? She was married to all the scripture. And Jesus said, fellas, now listen to this. You are ignorant. By that he meant you, you are uninformed, you don't know your Bible, and you don't know the power of God either. And then he made some remarks and took them back to Exodus where Moses is at the burning bush and uses that instance to show them that there is afterlife, that Abraham... Isaac and Jacob were all in existence in 1500 B.C. when Moses was at the burning bush, even though those three men had been dead for centuries. I'm telling you, they were astonished and had nothing more to say to him. But the question is, did they stop being Sadducees? Because their whole, their whole religion was just repudiated and discredited right there by Jesus just going back and quoting from Exodus 3. Absolutely astounding. In just a matter of a few words, he was able to, to give doctrine a razor force to impact them. And yet, the vast majority of them continued down the wrong way. That's sad. Well, I hope I've encouraged you to think more clearly about what Jesus was really like and to love him more. Thank you for your attention.